Well, Luke, it's great to meet in this space. Um, for for uh, those of you who were paying attention during the introductions, you will have heard we're both co uh, colleagues at Harvard, uh, but we have scarcely been able to see one another in person, of course, for, for well over a year. And here we are meeting in, uh, quote unquote, in Boston uh, on, a, on a screen instead. Um, welcome to uh, the guests with us tonight, who I see are from all over uh, New England and, and even uh, off in uh, California. So, um, so you know, this, this book that Luke has written, um, the free world. It's a it's a really titanic achievement, um, and uh, and it uh, is uh, quite. Um, it, it, it's long. I won't. I won't. Uh, <laughs> I won't hide that. Um, but it reads with the fluency and ease of Luke's New Yorker essays, which I'm guessing a lot of you who are with us tonight uh, are familiar with. So um, so long, but. Uh, but so uh, sort of vibrant, um, I found myself really just sort of, you know, sort of whizzing through this in a, um, you know, uh, aside from the weight of the volume in my hands with no sense that this was kind of a, a, a big tome. Um, it is a book that is rich with personality, rich with incident, rich with artistic genres. Uh, it ranges across um, the realms of intellectual life and the visual arts and music. Um, and it's a book that is animated, I think, really by this fundamental idea of freedom and liberty. And I wondered, Luke, if you know, for maybe the first part of our conversation this evening, we can we can try to give some of the uh, audience members a flavor of just some of those personalities and ideas that do make this book uh, skip along. Um, and I wondered if you could, you know, you just said in um, our our sort of pregame chat um, that you, when you started out on this project, you thought that you would end up writing about a very different set of things from what you did end up writing about. And I wondered if you could tell us uh, about, you know, where you thought you'd go and where you went instead. Sure, yeah, um, happy to explain that because it gives us a little bit of an idea of how I ended up with the book I ended up with. Uh, but first just wanna say how grateful I am to the Athenaeum for sponsoring this. And just to say that my mom who was a colonial historian, was a member and she loved the Athenaeum. She actually lived right down the street on Commonwealth Ave. Um, so it's just, it feels good to be able to meet with all of you and talk about the book. Um, when I started writing the book, I didn't have a lot of preconceptions about the period that I was gonna write about. So it starts in 1945, end of the Second World War, um, and it ends in 1965, <clears throat> more or less, which is the date that the United States got militarily involved in South Vietnam. So that seemed to me to kind of give bookends to the period I wanted to write about. <clears throat> um, but as I said, I didn't, I didn't really have a very uh, concrete set of expectations when I started out. I just tried to sort of see where the material led me. That wasn't just because uh, I hadn't thought hard about it. It was because I just think as an historian, you kind of want to go where the material takes you. You don't want to start out with a thesis that you have to kind of cram everything into. And that's often the case with surveys. So I didn't want to write a survey that was based on a single theme or a single idea. I wanted to see what emerged. So I started in 1945, as I said, because that's the end of the Second World War. And shortly after that, the United States entered the Cold War with the Soviet Union. So the first chapter is about that happening, focusing on uh, George Kennan, 
who was the author of the policy of containment, which was more or less the United States policy vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union and communism generally until the end of the Cold War, in spite of a lot of rhetoric about liberation and so on. We never really did any of that stuff. Um, so I started with Cannon, and um, and then I explained the doctrine of containment or the policy of containment. I also explained the international relations theory that that policy comes out of, which is called realism, which is the view that countries should just protect their own national interests and should not concern themselves with what goes on inside other countries. So Kennan's view was that all kinds of bad stuff could be taking place in the Soviet Union, but it's not our business to stop that because we don't have any stake in what goes on in the Soviet Union. That's their problem. What we need to do is make sure that communism doesn't expand, hence containment. We put keep communist, communism in its box, and it will eventually destroy itself of its own inefficiencies. So that was the policy. So I start there. And then when I started there, I realized that Vietnam was the perfect place to end because Vietnam is a crisis of that policy. Because people said, well, does the policy therefore mandate that we should resist militarily North Vietnam's encroachment on South Vietnam? And that question, even Kennan couldn't answer that question. So that seemed like a good place to end. Okay, so I wrote this chapter on Kennan and on international relations, and then I thought, well, what comes next? And then I thought 1984 has to come next, because 1984 is probably the most read book in the Cold War about the Cold War. Um, and so I tried to figure out where Orwell got his vision for 1984, looked at the sources of his thought, and then tried to explain what he was trying to do uh, in that novel. So I finished that chapter and I said, well, what has to come next? Existentialism. Because existentialism starts right after the war, right after Paris is liberated, which is in 1944. Sartre and Beauvoir come on the scene, uh, and then they begin what Beauvoir called the existentialist offensive. Uh, publishing books and so on, giving talks. They published a mag started a magazine, um, and existentialism becomes it goes everywhere. It sort of floods the field for quite a while. So I wrote about that, um, and then I said, well, "What comes after that?" So what comes after that was Hannah Arendt's book on the origins of the origins of totalitarianism, which was published in 1951. Um, and I explained about Hannah Arendt's story, which is an incredible story if you don't know it about her exile, basically, from uh, Germany, um, coming to the United States, a country she had zero interest in, didn't even know the language, and she stayed here and had an incredible career here. So talk about that uh, Talk about that book and her and her relationship with David Reisman. It's probably something most people don't know about, but David Reisman, the sociologist, who wrote The Lonely Crowd, which was 1950, had a correspondence with Hannah Arendt and tried to get her to contribute to The Lonely Crowd. So that's interesting story. Okay, so then I'm starting to see where the story is taking me, um, and then the other chapters became more clear in my head about where I was going to go. It's like I was trying to create stepping stones to get from 1945 to 1965. So I talk about abstract expressionist painting, focusing on Jackson Pollock. I talk about Lionel Trilling, whose book The Liberal Imagination is kind of a classic statement of liberal anti-communism. And I talk about Lionel Trilling's most famous student, you wouldn't believe this, but it's Allen Ginsberg, uh, and their relationship was actually quite close for a number of years. Um, then I have a chapter on decolonization and the uh, creation of structural anthropology. That's also an interesting story. It takes place, like a lot of the stories in this book, takes place by the sort of serendipitous meeting of two exiles, Roman Jakobsen, who was a Russian linguist, and Claude Levi-Strauss, who was a French 
anthropologists. They happen to be because they both have to exiled into New York. So they run into each other in New York and have a big influence on each other. I have a chapter on John Cage. So you know that John Cage, the avant-garde composer, probably most famous for the piece called, which is known as the silent piece for piano. Actual title is four minutes and 33 seconds, which is how long it takes to perform it. Uh, he composed that in 1952. Um, and of course I knew about Cage, but I didn't realize what an important figure he was this entire period. Because for a lot of people, not just Americans, but Europeans too, he personified the spirit of the avant-garde. Um, and he influenced a lot of, not just composers, but also artists. So I talk about Cage, I talk about his partner, Merce Cunningham, the choreographer and dancer. A Robert Rauschenberg, who was very close to Cage and Cunningham, actually worked on Cunningham's dances and did the sets and the costumes. And Jasper Johns, who was Robert Rauschenberg's partner, uh, who was also close to them. So that we call them the fabulous foursome. They're just an incredible artistic force in this period, all of them really important for their own reasons. Have a chapter on the rise of rock and roll, focusing on Elvis Presley and the Beatles. Um, I have a chapter on uh, the obscenity law. So one of the big things that happens in this period is that the United States and Britain had very restrictive obscenity laws that were nationally enforced. They weren't local laws, they were federal laws. Um, and uh, it made it very difficult to publish books that had any kind of sexual content uh, in either country. So as a consequence, a lot of English language books get published in Paris. The French didn't really care about English language books because they were bought by tourists. So that's where James Joyce's Ulysses was published, for example, in 1922. So a big event in this period in the U.S. is actually the rolling back of obscenity law, which was, which was accomplished by a series of Supreme Court decisions starting in 1958. And that allowed for the publication of all kinds of material that people would have gone to jail to if they tried to jail for if they tried to publish in 1950. Then I have a chapter on James Baldwin. So James Baldwin is a fascinating character, a very complicated man. Um, so the first part of that chapter has to do with James Baldwin's stay in Paris. So he's very young. In 1948, he goes to Paris. He spends the next uh, seven or eight years there, um, really to 1957. Um, and it's a good, important place to be because of decolonization, because France is one of the empires which has started to decolonize and had two colonial wars, which are devastating wars, the Algerian War and the War in Indochina. So Baldwin is around when people are talking about decolonization. And a lot of the colonial subjects, French colonial subjects, from places like West Africa and Martinique, come to Paris and talk about uh, blackness and about race and about world politics. And Baldwin is present for all those conversations. So it's an important ingredient in his thinking until he comes back to the United States in 57. Uh, I have a um, chapter on British pop art, which is a response to basically American consumerism and the kind of iconography of consumerism, advertising, labeling, packaging, and so forth. <clears throat> I have a chapter on literary criticism, which happens to be my field, um, and uh, its development through what we call the new critics, who, who provided the kind of dominant paradigm for literary analysis in the 1950s. Um, I talk about their interesting background, where they came from, and how odd it was in a way that they emerged in the American, in the modern university. Um, I have a chapter on Andy Warhol, an American pop art. And I have a chapter on the women's movement, specifically on Betty Friedan and the feminine mystique. And in that chapter, I also talk about Susan Sontag, who's like a super important figure in intellectual history for really changing the way Americans thought about popular culture and about culture generally. 
um, chapter on the civil rights movement that also features Baldwin, um, comes back, becomes very good friends with Martin Luther King, big supporter of King's, participates in civil rights activities, a march on Washington, um, the march from Selma, um, and uh, <clears throat> uh, talk about the, the what happens to the civil rights movement after 1965 a little bit. Um, then I have a chapter on the movies, uh, and particularly the relationship between American cinema and French cinema, which is a great story. Um, and then finally, the last chapter is on the emergence of the new left. I look at the Berkeley Free Speech Movement, which is 1964, and the founding of SDS, which was in 1962. The, then I look at the revelations about the CIA's covert involvement in all kinds of non-governmental organizations through this whole entire period. And then I end with uh, Vietnam. Um, so, so those are all the things I talk about. Um, and we'll only be able to talk about a couple of them probably uh, tonight. So, you know, it's, um, it's one of these, uh, I, I mean, I think it's, it's the audience hopefully got a flavor for, you know, just how much is in this book and what wide um, terrain you cover. And I also would like to just stress to everybody just in what depth you cover all of it as well. Um, you know, one of the things that I was wondering as I was reading it is, you know, how, how did you um, move from a realm of ideas on foreign policy into the realm of abstract expressionism and pop art and music? And I think, um, some of what you've just said to us helps answer that, but I wonder if I can um, ask you to say a little bit more about how you how you understand the relationship ultimately between you know a kind of um, what sounded from what you were describing as a sort of you know idea driven uh, inquiry and an idea driven period in a certain sense you know for American America's self perception of its role in the world to um, work that is sometimes quite deliberately eschewing the declaration of ideas yeah. in the creative realm. Yeah, so that's, that's a good question. And I, could, I, I would have to give a somewhat complicated answer, but I'll try to make it clear. Um, it's a very exciting period in culture. And that's surprised me a, a lot because I think I'd inherited this sort of stereotype of the Cold War period as a rather static, sterile period uh, in which nothing interesting was really going on because everybody was afraid of one thing or another. But that doesn't seem to be the case at all. And secondly, um, I inherited a little bit the idea that everybody's preoccupied with the Cold War, with geopolitics and with communism. And that's also not really the case. And as you point out, one feature of the discussions about culture in this period is it's very art for art's sake. People are interested in formalist questions like what is a painting? They're not that interested in the content of it. They're interested in figuring out what makes a good movie or what makes a good poem. Um, it doesn't become politicized really until 1965, after 1965, when Vietnam politicizes everything. So that also surprised me a little bit. That Pete, John Cage didn't worry about the Cold War. He was trying to figure out interesting ways to make musical compositions. So I think there's a bunch of reasons why that happens. Um, one is that um, the Cold War itself was a war of ideas, but that included ideas about art, because the Soviet Union, of course, had an official aesthetic, which is socialist realism. So the United States, in fighting the Soviet Union, 
had to present an alternative idea about art. So for the Soviets, art was basically propaganda and they censored art that they didn't feel was compatible with the state's ideological line. In the United States, therefore, we wanted to send the message to the rest of the world that it's not the way it works here. We don't have an official aesthetic and we don't, the state doesn't tell artists what they can and cannot say. So that, that, made the government probably take positions that otherwise wouldn't have taken for, for its own propaganda purposes. So that's one thing that happens. Another thing that happens is that this is why Orwell's book is so important and Hannah Arendt's book as well, Origins of Totalitarianism, is that people were really worried, particularly in the early part of the period, that the United States could tip over into totalitarianism because that's basically what Orwell's book is about. Orwell isn't trying to describe what Soviet communism was like in that book. He'd already done a parody of that in The Animal Farm. 1984 is a book about everybody's future. This is what the future is going to be for everybody, he's saying. This is what the world's going to look like if we don't watch our step. So, and Hannah Arendt's sort of the same. She's like, it could happen here. Don't be, don't fool yourselves. Just because you think, oh, it's a liberal democracy, it never happened. It could happen here. That's one reason why Hannah Arendt's book became very popular during the, when Trump was elected president. Uh, it could happen here. So people thought, well, then everything matters because everything is potentially a step in the wrong direction. Um, it, it, it sounds odd to us because we don't think about art that way, but they did think about it that way. So everything was really important for them. People really cared about stuff for reasons that it's hard for us to remember. But if you go back, you can see it happening. So that also made things really important. And then the final thing is that remember 1945 that the world had been through a depression that lasted almost 10 years and then a world war it lasted six years the people were ready for a fresh start the germans called 1945 zero hour it's like this is we're starting all over in 1945 forget about the past and so that creates a spirit in which you can question everything so people didn't ask themselves is this a good painting they asked themselves what is a painting they didn't ask themselves is this a good poem they asked, so what is a poem it was like they had to reinvent the whole idea of art all over again that's very exciting and pe people found there were other people around who wanted to do that with them. Very small number of people at first, but it kept growing. So I, another question that I had along the same lines of the sort of implicit tension that I wonder if you could say a little bit more about um, this evening is that, as you mentioned in your overview of the book, a lot of what happens in this book are um, encounters between people. Um, sometimes really serendipitous, sometimes really surprising, um, sometimes, of course, you know, incredibly consequential for the for the um, products that they end up creating. Um, and yet, another really important feature of this period and of the the, the um, world that you sketch out are, is the role of institutions, whether those are government institutions, whether they are, which are multiplying in the form of, say, the CIA, uh, whether they are, you know, museums, whether it's the publishing industry, uh, and one of your longest chapters deals in particular with the university. Um, so I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about your understanding of the relationship between um, individuals and institution making in this period. Yeah. So that's a very good insight into the, what the book tries to do. <clears throat> On the one hand, I'm looking at social institutional forces that develop, that make possible a certain kind of art, a certain kind of music, certain ideas. Um, on the other hand, I'm looking at individual life histories, biography. 
I've always been interested in history from that point of view because I think people's life stories tells you a lot about what it is they're attempting to do in their work. Um, there's sort of a protocol often in criticism that we don't pay attention to biography, but I think that's certainly from a historian's point of view, that's a mistake. And so what's interesting is the intersection. What's interesting is the moment when social conditions, including let's call it institutional infrastructures and so forth, have developed to a point where something, somebody who has a particular talent for something, is really good at something, can do that thing. Um, and, and those moments, I think, are actually tend to be quite fleeting. So you're trying to capture that. And therefore, part of what you're trying to capture is kind of serendipity. It just so happens that this person was doing this thing at this moment when it suddenly made a difference. So I just give you a couple examples from the, from the art world. One is Pollock. Um, so Pollock came to New York from LA where he went to high school and um, he was very ambitious painter, um, but he struggled in the beginning to find a place in the art world. Um, this is a time when the sort of venues and so forth of contemporary American painting were rel relatively small number. So there were not places to show your work and there were not a lot of critics who were interested in it. Um, and he also struggled to find a style. Um, so uh, he was, you know, he his work was basically some kind of representational art, but in a kind of Jungian, you know, imagery and so forth. So it was just very muddy, I would call it. Um, and then he married Lee Krasner, also a painter, and they <clears throat> moved to Long Island in 1946. And he, they bought a house, <clears throat> and he uh, started painting in the house and. He was then painting pieces, pieces that were quite large, sort of mural size paintings. And the walls of the house, this is what the story is anyway, the walls of the house were not big enough for him to stretch a canvas on them. So he put it on the floor and he started throwing paint on it. So throwing paint, he would take a paint can, he put a stick in it, and then he'd you know, wave the stick over the canvas and create the lines of the drip paintings. And he liked the way it looked. So when they converted a barn on the property into a studio, he continued to put the canvas on the floor and he continued to throw paint on it. And he would walk around the canvas, he could throw paint from any direction, and so it was, sort of liberated him really to create paintings in a new way instead of just standing in front of an easel. Um, and he really liked them. And so between spring or summer of 1947 and the late fall of 1950, when he stopped doing the drip paintings, he created this incredible body of work. They're unbelievably beautiful paintings. And people said, oh, my five-year-old could do that. I don't think so. They're totally inimitable. You, you couldn't do it. Um, he had a, this was something he just was really, really good at. And the paintings are great paintings. But it mattered because that was just the moment in uh, cultural history when people were deciding the way to go was abstraction. And the drip paintings are pure abstraction. They're completely non-representational. Um, and they're not only that, they're non-illusionistic. So when you look at a representational painting, you're looking at an illusion of some real object out there, even though it's two-dimensional and just paint. The trip paintings are just paint. That You know that's what you're looking at. So this was a kind of breakthrough in American art. Other people were trying to do the same kind of thing at the same time, and that gave kind of critical mass to this way of thinking about painting, and Pollock became the figurehead of abstract expressionism. So it's kind of an accident. He didn't think, oh, 
where's the paradigm going in painting? He just thought, how can I make a painting in this stupid house? It doesn't have a wall that's big enough. So there's lots of examples. Another example of that is uh, the story of Rauschenberg and Johns. So Robert Rauschenberg um, uh, <clears throat> um, was, it became well known for what are called combines. Combines are basically three-dimensional collages. So he would take various objects, usually a lot of stuffed animals, Coke bottles, pairs of shoes, mannequins, whatever, things from magazines and so forth, and he would <clears throat> create these three-dimensional collages of them. Um, and he met uh, Jasper Johns, who became his partner, and Jasper Johns is famous for, of course, his first famous painting is the American flag painting, which is a really iconic painting, um, uh, which he <clears throat> created in 1955. Uh, so how did they meet? So they met because well before they'd done, either of them had done this work, they were both starting out. Uh, Robert Rauschenberg did a show at the Stable Gallery, which is a gallery, art gallery on 7th Avenue in the 50s. And uh, the Stable Gallery was named because it used to be a horse stable. So it still smelled of the horses who had been inhabiting the building. And in exchange for doing a show there, uh, Rauschenberg agreed to work as a janitor cleaning it out at night. So he was he would clean it out at night and then he would walk home and he's walking across 57th Street and he ran into a woman he knew, his name was Susie Gavlek, and she was with this guy and the guy was Jasper Johns who worked at a bookstore, Marlboro Bookstore, on 57th. And Rauschenberg got a crush on him, as Johns is a probably handsome young man, and eventually they became partners. After they became partners, they got a loft downtown, two lofts actually, one on, one on top of the other, uh, one on one floor, one below, four below it, and, after, and they each created, Johns created the flag, and Rauschenberg created the first combine. They, they worked together, they collaborated together, they clearly inspired each other, had these incredible breakthroughs in their own careers, and created these works that are representative of, of their own art. That wouldn't have happened if Robert Rauschenberg hadn't been shoveling shit in the stable gallery. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff like that where it just it just happens that people bump into people, um, and then it has this incredible knock-on effect uh, in 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 cultural history. So I'm trying to capture that, but not make it all sound just like a pure accident. To make make us understand that there's all kinds of other reasons, external forces, that are making it possible for this kind of stuff to take place. So that's what I'm trying to capture in the book. That's why it's so long. <laughs> One of the things that I also noticed as a kind of through line or, or uh, you know, recurring um, recurring motif is the role of pairs throughout the book, right? I mean, you've got uh, Trilling and Ginsburg, you have Presley and Lenin, you have Friedan and Sontag. And what you've just said, I think, explains uh, a lot of why that's so resonant is that I think as a biographer and a historian, it is one of the ways that is open to us to be able to uh, supply the kind of depth and originality uh, that looking at an individual really warrants with at the same time giving some sort of flavor of that larger context of the property. Yeah, there's always a community there, you know, it takes a, it takes a village. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for art, for example, for contemporary American art like pop art to become accepted. You had to have critics who could explain it. They had to have museums that wanted to buy it. They had to have galleries that wanted to show it. Um, once, those, once that infrastructure is in place, then art movements can take off, but they can't just do it on their own. 
So, you know, it is a very long book and it's a very kind of cheap shot to say like, how come you didn't include X, Y, or Z? So I don't pose the, the next question in that spirit at all, but rather as a way of just, you know, making sense of the parameters of what you've covered here. Um, so for example, the geography of the book is very much, this is a New York book. This is a Paris book. There's a little bit of Germany. Uh, there's a little bit of London, you know, but that's the, the free world. If one were to draw a map of it on the basis of this book, that's what it would look like, right? And for very, very good reasons. Um, similarly, you know, as you've just said, you know, it's about, it's, you know, the, these institutions that they're working in, the galleries, the, the, the people, the, the, the critics, the editors, the, you know, the policymakers, et cetera. It's less about the consumers, right? It's less about what the, you know, what, what the mass reaction to things is. And yeah. I kept on thinking as I was reading it of one of the most sort of iconic, literally, images that one has coming out of the 60s, at least, which is from Warhol, who is the man who makes icons. And I'm thinking of the Mao faces, and I'm thinking of the Che Guevara faces, right? And so these are figures who would embody a very different kind of vision of a world, a different geography, um, a different set of ideas, and who enjoyed a particular kind of popular uptake that we get a little bit less insight into in the book. And I just wondered if you could maybe reflect a little bit on how you understand the relationship between the things you've included, the things you haven't. Yeah, yeah. you know, <clears throat> um, when you write the first chapter of a book, you're basically stretching the canvas <clears throat> and to see what the scale of the book's gonna be. And I remember after writing the first chapter, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be a very long book because I just felt to do this the way I want to do it, it's just going to take a lot of material. Um, but in doing that, I realized I couldn't possibly do a survey that covered everything. Um, now, I find surveys boring as a reader because um, things go by too fast. You don't really, it's just lists of titles and stuff. Um, so I didn't want to do that. Um, I wanted to write something that felt like every chapter was a fresh adventure, learning about a new subject. Uh, in uh, I try to contextualize everything independently of everything else so that you can sort of see how a particular, like rock and roll, how it arose, when it arose, and so forth. Um, so, so that's what gave me pleasure in writing it. But in doing so, of course, I was very aware that I was having to leave out a lot of stuff. Um, you know, it's very selective. Um, your point about geography is an important one because um, I think that uh, in histories of the Cold War, for a long time, they tended to be very US centric. And the rest of the world was kind of this passive entity, and the US was doing all these things to it. And in political Cold War history, for the last 20 years or so, it's become very global. So it's not US centric at all anymore because it was a global, <coughs> global war. Um, it affected all parts of the world. In, I think, cultural Cold War history, it still tends to be quite U US centric. So I was concerned, and this is something I didn't really figure it out until I got a few chapters in. I was concerned that I try to make the story as international as possible um, and to show that what was going on in the US was a function of its circulation of its cultural goods with the cultural goods of many other parts of the world. Not just Western Europe, but also Japan, um, India, uh, uh, and 
the um, even there, I was kind of limited because of just space constraints. So it surprised me, honestly, to find how many French people <laughs> I ended up writing about. It's not what I expected. But Paris turns out, France turns out to be just really important in the story. I mean, I have, you know, part of, I deal with deconstruction. I mean, it's a lot of stuff that's important here. It, it comes from our exchanges with France. And the movie story is, of course, a classic example of that. Um, so it just ended up that I wrote about those things. The British pop art chapter is partly was partly written just to make sure I got some British stuff in there, because that is also about American-British relations. Um, it's an important story, but I wanted to you know, give have a chapter on British culture. Um, I don't do much with Germany, except there's a story about Darmstadt. Darmstadt was a city in Germany that had a musical music school every summer. Um, that all the avant-garde composers in Europe went to, and John Cage went there. Um, they were they were very interested in Cage's music. Um, a little bit about Italy, but not enough. And I wanted to have a chapter on Japan because Japanese art in the '50s was way more avant-garde than most American art was, and had a big influence on the New York art scene in particular. I get touch on a few of those figures in one chapter, but I don't really talk about Japan. And Japan's a really big part of the story. If I started all over again, and also if I was more of a polymath, I would probably have more countries in the in the story. But I did I did as much as I could mm -hmm. uh, to make it international. You know, you were talking uh, a little while ago about the desire to make each chapter seem like an exploration, and that people are discovering something new. You've spent you know a lot of time over the last over the period while you were writing this book, also writing essays. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit about you know the relationship as you understand it between writing essays and writing a book and how you yourself just managed that process of working on this very long uh, you know long both in 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 terms of pages but also number of years a project as against the essay writing you do so well yeah God knows really <laughs> it was insane. As I said, you know, I started writing the book about 10 years ago. And uh, as I said, once I started it, I pretty quickly realized it was just going to be a monster project. Um, and then I just took one chapter at a time, which is the way I write anyway. And, uh, you know, I usually spend six months on a chapter um, and uh, sometimes more um, because, I, you know, I wanted you have to immerse yourself in the subject. I treated every subject, as I said, independently. So uh, I sort of set everything up again each time I did it. Um, and, you know, you get very into what you're writing about, of course. You get, I got very interested in all these characters. Mm -hmm. I love all these characters, Jack Kerouac. I mean, they're incredible characters. Um, and, uh, and then you want to do justice to, to what they accomplished and also understand it, as I said, contextually. So, you know, that's just what I was doing when I wasn't writing for the magazine. In terms of the... There's no real difference in my mind between what I write for the magazine and my books. I mean, it's, it's on a different scale with the book, obviously. But it's the same audience, really. Um, mm -hmm. I'd say educated people who are interested in something I'm interested in, uh, who may not know a lot about it or might know something about it or a lot about it. Uh, I want all those people to enjoy and hopefully hopefully learn from, from what I write. And I think even with magazine pieces, uh, certainly longer ones, you, you know, you still try to contextualize, you know, mm -hmm. still try to embed things in circumstances so people can understand where they came from. I was struck when you were writing about Trilling, you you quote Trilling saying, um, 
I think he says something like the, you know, that the, no idea was so difficult and complex that, yeah. but that it could be expressed in a way that would make it understood by anyone to whom it might conceivably be of interest. Yeah, um, I quoted so, that because that's my motto. That's right. Well, I was going to say, you go on to say that this is the premise of all literary journalism. And of course, I was thinking that is really the premise of this book and really your, your last book as well. Um, you know, you, you, you trained as, if that's a phrase we can use, uh, a literary <laughs> critic. You teach in an English department. You have a chapter in the book about literary criticism. I, and yet, you know, manifestly, this is a work of, you know, intellectual yeah. history, cultural history. Where do you see the, the, the role of the literary critic or the academic study of culture? Yeah. You mean in my, in my writing? I mean, no, I mean kind of more generally because, yeah. you know, another thing I was struck by in the prologue, you say, you know, this was a period where ideas mattered, painting mattered, movies mattered, poetry mattered. And as you've told us this evening, people were interested in what is a poem? What is a painting? You know, those questions, I would venture to suggest, resonate very differently today. Yeah. I mean, the, the kinds of stakes yeah. uh, are different. The st there, are, there are very high stakes in culture, but they rest in slightly different places. So yeah, I was just wondering if you could yeah, share. Yeah. No, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, so just on the thing about, about Trilling's, the quote from Trilling, I learned that from writing for the New York Review of Books because my editor there, Bob, used to say, you know, you could take any subject and write about it. You just do the homework, you know. You don't have to be a specialist. And I took that to heart. And uh, it's been great for me because I've just learned a lot about things I never would have learned about if I hadn't been asked to write a piece about it. So that's a big part of my, you know, intellectual history, I think, is writing magazine, writing magazine pieces. Mm -hmm. often you know, somewhat peripheral to my own specialty uh, of literature. Um, but to the second point, yeah, so it's interesting because I've been trying to think about comparing the cultural world of 1945, 1965 with the world that we're in now. It's obviously incredibly different because of the digital revolution, among other things. But there's a lot of things that you can sort of see the connection. One of them is that now culture really is global in a way that was just starting to become that way uh, after 1945. Now it's just all global. Everything circulates everywhere. Um, what's different partly is that everybody has access to it now. Um, and there's no dominant school of criticism. Nobody's telling you how to watch a movie anymore. Um, so it, it's way more democratic. It's way more accessible. Uh, it's, it's cheaper to, to be part of the story, to be involved with it. Uh, you know, kids can, record a song and put on Spotify and millions of people will listen to it. I mean, you couldn't do that in 1950, you know, um, needless to say. So so that's very different and I think in a, on the whole extremely good way, but the landscape is much flatter. So there's no like, we don't feel like, oh, I need to read this poem. I have to read this novel. Um, and also the critical debates seem a little, as you said, they're not really centered on the nature of the artistic object anymore. It's about something else usually. So we do, we do debate about art and literature, movies and so forth, but generally has to do with our political sort of concerns. It doesn't really have to do with the nature of the medium or something like that. So it, it just feels a lot flatter where, and we, we generally regard differences of opinion about 
art and literature, film and so forth, as just taste differences. That wasn't true in the 50s and 60s. People thought a lot more hung on, turned on, what kind of painting you liked. Um, so in that sense, it's it's just a, I would say it's in worse place, or just a very different place from, from, from that post-war period. Yeah, I would venture to add also that I think the differences between genres matter less. I mean, this yeah. is really elaborating on what you just said. And as a result, um, you know, what specifically the TikTok video can do as opposed to what specific, the, you know, the Netflix streaming series can do is perhaps um, sort of less part of the discussion than it, than it might have been at a certain point. And I think that may help account for the way in which there's a kind of fluidity in what people in literature departments are looking at, right? Because Yeah, yeah. It, it puts, puts literary professors in a kind of an awkward position because nobody actually cares what we say about poetry anymore. I mean, it doesn't, it's not like we have authority in that the cultural authority the way we might have had in 1955. Um, it's probably a good thing for the world that we don't, but uh, it kind of changes the job description a little bit. You're right. So um, I'd like to turn to some audience questions and let me just remind uh, the audience that uh, please to share your questions in the Q&A box that you'll find at the bottom of your, of your screen. Um, I'll just start with one um, question here from Charles Baring. Uh, you mentioned the George Kenning, uh, Kenan, George Kennan, um, of course, you know, kicked off the doctrine of realism. Um, and uh, the questioner doesn't remember learning about this in the 50s and 60s. Um, so um, the question is, was it widely thought of as the basis for American policy in that time? The policy of containment or realism? Realism, realism. Oh, yeah. Um, so Kennan uh, was a canny guy. Uh, he's a wonderful writer, by the way. His memoirs, there's two volumes of memoirs, make great reading. Um, uh, he was a canny guy, and he <clears throat> basically never credited anyone else with ideas that influenced him. He's one of the, Orwell was sort of the same way. Um, he just he presented himself as just an intelligent person who was observing things in a disinterested way, which wasn't really true. <laughs> I mean, he was intelligent, but so anyway. But he was very influenced by the uh, political theory called realism because it comes from the term realpolitik, of course, and it originates in 19th century Germany with Bismarck. And Kennan had studied in Berlin. So he went to Princeton and then he entered the Foreign Service and he studied abroad at the University of Berlin, spent several years there. He loved Germany, he loved German. Um, and he, uh, was, it, he was exposed to the theory of realism, which I tried to explain earlier, this idea about national interest guiding foreign policy. Um, and then uh, one of the emigres who plays an important role in the book, I didn't mention him earlier, is a man named Hans Morgenthau, who was German, came here, <clears throat> also didn't really want to come to the United States, but had to leave Germany, ended up here and ended up teaching at the University of Chicago. And he wrote a book called Politics Among Nations, I think it was first published in 1948, which is a kind of academic exposition of the theory of realism uh, applied to contemporary, inter, contemporary international relations. And uh, he became a friend of Kennan's, who of course admired the book. He admired Kennan's work. Uh, he invited Kennan to Chicago to give a series of lectures, which became a book that Kennan published on American diplomacy, which was very influential. And then Kennan invited Morgenthau to Washington when he was in the State Department, Kennan, to consult with State Department policy. So 
So yeah, they knew they were realists. Uh, did the rest of the country? No, I don't think people thought about realism outside of the academic world where, where it was definitely a school of thought. Um, but that's that's where it came from. And if I'm not much mistaken, this is also the period in which international relations becomes institutionally entrenched as a subject of study in universities, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. International relations always had a kind of strange ambivalent status because it's both an actual foreign, an actual policy pursued by the state and an academic discipline. Um, so that's right. And Morgenthau was a big figure behind that. Mm -hmm. That's right. Mm -hmm. um, a question from Theodore Hammett um, quotes you on page 517 saying that uh, Bob Dylan actually had nothing particularly interesting to say about American life. Um, but that in other articles, you, um, as he says, make much more laudatory statements about Dylan's music. So what is your view of Dylan's work and its importance in this period? Yeah, he's not the first reader to ask me that question. Um, yeah, I love Dylan. Uh, he's a songwriter. He's not a social, you know, commentator. Uh, and I think I'm saying what Dylan himself says in Chronicles, his autobiography. Uh, he says, you know, he said, I think Bob Dylan would know a lot if I wasn't Bob Dylan. So I think to look in his, I th the protest songs are different, obviously, because they are clearly political. But to look in his music after that for some kind of interesting social commentary on things, I think is a little bit of a mistake. It's like looking at Andy Warhol for the same reason. I think you're just people we project onto the stuff, uh, you know, what we want to think Dylan is saying. So that's all I'm saying there. Um, that they, these these are both figures who kind of get mistaken as incisive social commentators. I just don't think that's what their value is. But Dylan is one of the great songwriters of the 20th century, 21st century. Uh, I think he's written over 500 songs. So, um, and they're almost all, almost all great. So that's and that's what he thought he was. You know, I'm a songwriter. That's what he cares about songwriting. If you look at interviews with Dylan, um, people always get try to get him to talk about politics or something. And he's just very evasive and kind of almost jerky. And then once they start talking about songwriting, he's great. That's what he likes to talk about. So that's all I'm saying. Uh, Avery Morrow wants to know if you feel that the Red Scare had a chilling effect on political expression in artistic, literary, and film institutions. Uh, of course I do. Uh, so the Red Scare really begins in 1947 when Truman gives his the speech about this sort of starts the Cold War and then creates <clears throat> National Security Council, Defense Department, uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, CIA, uh, and institutes a kind of federal loyalty oath or federal loyalty test in which millions of federal employees were investigated to see whether they were loyal. Uh, and that had a huge chilling effect on government. A lot of Old new dealers got frozen out because of that. They'd be suspected of being communist sympathizers. And then in 1950, of course, Joseph McCarthy gives his famous speech in Wheeling, West Virginia, claiming to have a list of communists in the State Department, which he didn't really have. And he launches his career, which lasts about four years. So that's the period between 47 and 48 and 54. There's a lot of chilling going on, obviously. Um, and not just in the world of the government, which is what McCarthy was interested in, but in the university and, of course, in Hollywood. Um, so, yeah, that does definitely have a having a chilling effect. But I think it, it can, we can exaggerate a little bit the extent to which it silenced avant-garde uh, uh, artists. I don't think it really did do that. Um, I think those, those people were kind of off the McCarthyite radar. 
Um, so a lot of stuff is also interesting stuff is also going on in this period in the art world that has very little to do with the Red Scare. Um, there was a poll made in the 50, 52 or 53 about whether of social scientists, academics asked by whether McCarthyism or you know anti-communism had influence had affected their own work, and they basically said no. Um, so you know some significant number of people were driven out of the academy or certainly out of government positions. Um, that sort of comes to an end in 1956 and 7 when the Supreme Court basically rules unconstitutional these efforts to pry into citizens' political beliefs. Uh, another attendee wants to know something that I was wondering about as well, which is that um, the Cold War, this particular questioner says, I remember the Cold War, but it's ancient history to kids today. Um, what do you think are the biggest lessons of the era for young people? Of the Cold War period? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I found that, as I said, as I've been saying all along, really, I find it very exciting to follow these developments and debates in the world of art and ideas. More exciting than, as I said, than I kind of anticipated. I was very influenced by a book called The Cultural Cold War that was published in 1999 by Frances Saunders, English woman, uh, which, which claimed that the CIA was kind of behind everything like abstract expressionism and so on. Um, and then as I started working on it, I realized a lot of her claims are just wrong. Um, it, it's a very sloppy book. A lot of things she says are misattributed um, and so on. So I found that that's a very exaggerated view of what was going on. CIA was involved in an incredible number of activities, but it's a little hard to show that they had direct effect on what people were saying or thinking or painting or so on, publishing. Um, so I think, you know, there's a dark side to this period all the way through. The CIA is a big part of that. Uh, you know, obviously we intervened in other countries' politics, sometimes in really grotesque ways. Um, it, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of negative things you can say. And of course this culminates in the mess that we got into in Vietnam. So it's not as though, uh, you know, everything's great. Um, but it, what's interesting is there actually is all this other stuff going on, more or less independent of that history, um, which is what I'm writing about. I would augment that just by pointing out that, you know, I think this question is particularly salient right now because we're manifestly entering a Cold War II with China. Yeah. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how, you know, particularly given that this Cold War II is coinciding with so many developments and so much fertility in the digital realm, um, yeah. to see what that generates culturally. Yeah, it makes a different mix of factors, obviously. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that developed. One thing that's different, of course, is that it's not really a war about political ideas. So the thing to remember, of course, is that in the United States and Western Europe, a lot of intellectuals were socialists. They thought communism had failed, you know, that the Great Depression is what Marx predicted would happen. It would collapse and it had to be replaced by some more humane system than free market capitalism. And for them, that was socialism. That's who Orwell, Orwell was a socialist. So, uh, so they knew Stalin was an evil guy, but they thought the Soviet Union at least has the right idea about you know, public ownership and so on, uh, central planning. And um, 
So the Soviet, so they remained sympathetic. People like Sartre, they remained sympathetic because they were anti-capitalist to the Soviet Union. So it takes a long time for that for people to sort of give that idea up that these communist countries actually represent a viable alternative to to liberal democracy. Um, but so we don't have that with China, I don't think. I don't think intellectual American intellectuals think, well, I'd rather look at China. You know, um, you know they combine sort of the worst of both worlds. You know, the worst of free market capitalism and the worst kind of authoritarianism. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's what people say on the left. But I would say that the that the uh, contrast between the U.S. and China has acted as a revivification. You know, has has revivified American messaging about liberal democracy. In yeah. the totalitarianism. And so in that context, I found much of what you had to say uh, about totalitarianism and the anxieties about that to be incredibly resonant now. Um, oh, yeah. So that part of it, sure, uh, that, you know, we are defending liberal democracy. And I think we feel legitimately, even here at home, that it's it's a vulnerable polity. Um, and, uh, and that, you know, I, I'm hopeful that the current government will see that the United States has to play a role globally in defending this these ideals, uh, just as we tried to do after 1945, and try to avoid the messes that we made back then along the way. Mm -hmm. So um, we just have one or two minutes left, and so I'm going to ask you the the kind of inevitable question uh, from, from the audience uh, that, that comes at the end of a book uh, and a book talk, namely, what will you write next? Yeah. Well, for a long time, I thought nothing uh, because I just I'm going to hang up my pen. Um, but I think I have to write a book about Vietnam, unfortunately. So that's, I've, it'd be a very different kind of book, but after I write Vietnam, because um, it was a very vivid period of my well, I was quite young as a teenager, but I, it was a very vivid period of my life because my parents were very anti-war and very political people. Um, then, of course, I was draft, you know, I got a draft classification. All, I mean, I went sort of went through all that anxiety that most people did, but I fortunately wasn't called up. Um, so, but, but I remember what a fever this country was in for almost eight years, 65 till we pulled out in 73. Uh, certainly the first five years of that was just all consuming. Um, and it really marks a break with the period I'm writing about, um, just really changes everything. And I want to try to capture that uh, in a book. Um, and I also feel weirdly, I was quite ambivalent actually as an anti-war person in the 60s. I'm more, less ambivalent now. But um, I feel, I always felt a little guilty that I missed this experience. I would, I would have been terrified to, to go over to Vietnam, but I feel like I should go now to see what it's like. So I'm going to do that. Great. Well, we will all look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you for, for sharing uh, so much of your wisdom and research and sheer energetic prose uh, with uh, all your readers and some of your ideas with us this evening. All right. Uh, Thank you.